Violence. Uh, there's a word in Sanskrit, ahimsa, which means nonviolence. It doesn't really mean nonviolence. I mean, Gandhi used that word because uh, there are certain situations in which if one is so nonviolent, one actually produces more violence. For example, let's say there's someone who's going to... I mean, there was. I just hate to talk about this horrible thing that happened in Florida, but there was one young person who knew that killer and said that I could have stopped it. So in philosophy classes, if you take, especially undergraduate philosophy classes all over the country, you, you get questions like this. Let's say, for example, that uh, you know that someone's on their way to shoot a bunch of innocent people, and you know that for a fact. Do you stop the person? Let's say you have the power to, to kill that person and, and to make it even, let's say, more clear, you could say that you can just sort of kill them or not kill them. You can't just sort of wound them or, you know, shoot them in the leg or something. It's just a situation where you really just have to kill them because that's, that's all you can do. I mean, you can think of examples. For example, let's say the person's on a cliff. You can push the person off the cliff, but you can't push them halfway down or you can't just... Uh, they're either going to die or not. So if you don't kill that person, if you don't kill that person, then, uh, last try. Yes? What? I, yeah, I'm in the middle of the program, actually. We had to begin. So make it. No. Okay. No, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Tell everybody it doesn't work, okay? And we're, re we're recording in a different way. Okay. Um, so, there you get a situation where if you uh, don't kill the person, uh, you're going to cause the death of a huge number of innocent people. And so if you held strictly to this, uh, to this idea, you would really be responsible for the death of many, many people. So, uh, in fact, Krishna talks about this. Krishna talks about this violence in... Um, actually, there, there may be a way we can do it through something else called Ustream. I apologize for all this stuff. If I was you, I'd be very annoyed by what I'm doing right now. In the Battle of Kurukshetra, in the Battle of Kurukshetra, uh, Krishna was preaching to, I forget whether it was Karna or Bhishma, but he was, he told this story. There was a great sage, so-called great sage, living in an ashram outside of town. <clears throat> and, uh, and this sage uh, was very proud of having made a vow that this sage would, would never tell a lie. And, and not only that, but if anyone asked this person, the sage, a question, he would give an honest answer. He would give an honest answer, and, and he was like, he thought he was really a righteous sage, because he would always give a righteous answer to a question. So there was a situation where uh, there were some murderous thieves who were chasing these innocent people to, to rob them and kill them, or perhaps kill them and rob them in that order. And so these terrified innocent people ran through the ashram of this sage who was in the forest meditating and they hid 
in, in the woods around that um, around the ashram. Then the murderers came and they asked the sage, do you know where the people went? Do you know where the people went? And uh, he kept his vow and he said, yeah, they're actually hiding in the trees over there. And so the criminals went there and killed them. And then Krishna said, because that sage kept his vow and told the truth, he went to hell. Because he caused the death of innocent people. Now, there are echoes of this type of, by the way, in in technical Western philosophical language, that sage's approach to ethics or morality would be called deontological ethics or act-based ethics in the, in, the, in, the, in the sense that if you're searching for where is morality, where is, where is, let's say, the good, the moral good or the ethical good, it's located in the act itself, regardless of the consequences. And there are even famous Western philosophers who, amazing, amazingly enough, taught that, like Kant, Immanuel Kant, who in other respects seemed to be bright, but he, there, obviously there seemed to be a glitch here. And so, I mean, the example Krishna gave is really almost identical to the typical example that's given in Western philosophy classes, such as, uh, let's say, you're living in Amsterdam in 1943 or something like that, and you know that some Jewish people are hiding in, in, you know, let's say, in the basement of your house, and some Nazi soldiers come to the door and ask you the simple question, are there any Jews? Do you know if there are any Jews around here? And let's say the circumstances are such that if you lie, if you lie, you won't get caught. It's not that if you lie, the Nazis will discover you, they'll kill your children. That would make it much more complicated, obviously. Mm-hmm. But it's not complicated. The circumstances are such, I mean, we could, you can create all kinds of circumstances, like, for example, let's say the soldiers are in a hurry because they've got to go to 100 houses and they only have 15 more minutes and they'll be punished if they don't finish their job. And so you know they're not going to stop, they're not, they're not going to investigate, they have no way of, they have no way of um, f- discovering that you lied. But according to Kant, according to Immanuel Kant, who ironically was German, you um, you tell the truth. Favoritism much? What's it? Favoritism much? I don't understand what you're saying. Anyway, well, l- later you can we'll have to take questions afterwards. So according, according to the philosopher Kant, you simply tell the truth. Now, what's the problem with that approach? I think the problem is obvious. And that is, if, if you say ethics or, or the moral good is located in the act itself, how can you separate the act from its consequences? It's like saying that, you know, some, you'll say you shoot someone and then you say, well, I'm innocent because I didn't kill the person the bullet did. Obviously, when you pulled the trigger, the consequence of that was that a bullet came out of the gun and killed somebody. But you could say, technically, I didn't touch the person. So to say that you can separate an act from its consequences, I think, is ultimately absurd. And uh, I think, and, and that's what Krishna teaches, by the way, that it is absurd, and that actually, if by f- sticking to some so-called ethical principle, you actually cause, you directly cause evil in the world, then that act cannot be good. An act which causes evil cannot be a good act. 
So that's the moral philosophy that Krishna teaches. So if we come back to the point of violence, and you say, like, how would you define violence? Uh, well, actually, maybe I can get something on this computer to work. Did I just... Maybe I didn't just stop it. Let's, let's look up in the dictionary what the word violence means. This is the Google dictionary. It's probably the worst dictionary <laughs> known to humankind. But anyway, it says violence. Here it says behavior involving physical force intended to hurt, damage, or kill someone or something. It can also mean, uh, in law, it's the unlawful exercise of physical force. So if we go with the legal definition, because obviously you could say violence, I mean, every time you drink a cup of water, you're committing violence because there are microorganisms there who are definitely harmed by being swallowed. But you can't avoid it because you have to drink water. So, so if, we, if we go with the legal definition, because I think the advantage of the legal definition here is that when societies make laws to the extent that they have good intentions, to the extent that they actually want to make fair laws, then uh, you have to be practical. You can't be silly. And so you can't really sue people because, let's say, they drank water and killed microorganisms that you were personally friends with. And So the legal definition, which is sort of like no-nonsense, let's talk about the real world and what's really practical. So the legal definition would be the unlawful exercise of physical force or intimidation by the exhibition of such force. So, um, so as far as violence, if we, if we make that distinction, then we would have to admit that there are lawful or there are ethically justifiable acts of violence. If it was someone that you care about, your children, your family, someone you really care about, that was in mortal danger and it was possible to stop the attacker. I mean, this is, this is not rocket science. So, so then if we explore this topic though, why does anyone commit what would truly be an unethical exercise of violence? Harming an innocent person. Harming someone mentally or physically, in which there is no reasonable justification. And so that really ultimately has to do with um, spiritual topics. There is empathy. There is such a thing as empathy, which means you kind of feel what someone else is feeling. The word sympathy, the sim, by the way, in sympathy, is the same, it's the Sanskrit sam, sim, as in sankirtan, together. Mm-hmm. And pathos, is a, it's, a, it's an older Latin word which means suffering. Uh, and that's why, you, like, you know, the passion of Christ, it doesn't mean that he got, like, really excited about something. It means his suffering. So that's an older use of the word passion. And so sim, like, or pathos, so sympathy literally means that you feel someone suffering. You feel someone suffering. And uh, then empathy, of course, is a related word. So, um, but then again, what about someone who's so, let's say, uh, uh, challenged in terms of their ability to see things reasonably, 
that they actually have empathy. Imagine someone that hates themselves and sees other people as being just like me and therefore hates them too. I mean, you see that. So, so in a sense, you could say mere empathy is, is not going to do everything we need here because there are too many cases, and they're all tragic, where someone, let's say, kills a bunch of other people then kills themselves. So someone can think, I don't deserve to live and you don't either. So in a sense, I mean, let's see what the word empathy means. That's kind of like a twisted, the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. So I I think we have to say that's not really empathy in these like murder-suicide tragedies because the people you kill don't really want to die. So you're not really feeling their feelings. It's sort of like a false... When, when someone, let's say, kills other people and kills himself or things like, you know, you'll be happier dead or something like that, they obviously don't understand the real feelings of the person, unless it's like a suicide pact. Let's say it's not, it's not like the person being killed said, would you mind killing me? So, so in that sense, it's a failure of empathy. It's a failure to understand the other person actually wants to live, the other person wants to be happy. And so why is it that people fail to understand the true feelings of others. What's really at work there? And Krishna gives an explanation of this, actually. Krishna explains this in the Bhagavad Gita in chapter 18, uh, verses, well, 20 through 22, and then 30 through 32, where Krishna talks about uh, what he, the term he uses is jnana, uh, related to the Greek word gnosis, with the same meaning, knowledge, awareness. And Krishna says that awareness, like everything else in this world, sometimes it's virtuous and sort of transparent and clear. Sometimes it's passionate and inaccurate. Because when, you know, when we're very passionate, we tend not to be very precise or really get things clear. Like if you're really angry at someone, you're probably not going to be entirely objective. Or if you're very attached to someone, or you hate someone, whenever like those passions kick in, you're not going to be at your most objective, let's say. And so Krishna talks about passion when your intelligence or your knowledge or your awareness is functioning in a very passionate way because you, you hate certain things and you are attached to other things. And finally, there's, there's ignorance which Krishna describes as sarvartan viparitam basically you get everything backwards. You just get everything backwards. So Krishna says that in the mode of goodness, in the, when, when, you're, when you are existing virtuously and the symptoms of this are that you're peaceful, you're kind, you're not selfish, you're not proud or vain, and you actually have the ability to see the oneness of all creatures. But when that intelligence becomes corrupted by material passion, then Krishna says you see people as sort of irreconcilably different. Like, for example, people who are passionate and ignorant think that people of different races are just different. People of different ethnicities are different. People of different nationalities, men and women are just different. And they, they, they simply can't see the oneness. They're unable to see that everyone is one. Because the oneness is not on the surface. On the surface, there are differences. 
there are surface differences of many different kinds. And so someone whose consciousness is stuck on the surface of reality is only going to see differences. So how do you get beneath the surface? How do you get deeper into understanding what's really going on? And by the way, there's a word for understand in Sanskrit, which is avagachati, which is very interesting. Ava means downward, like avatara. You've heard this word, avatara. It basically means a divine figure that comes down to stop uh, cruel, multi-planetary corporations. Just kidding. But the word avatar, actually ava means downward, tara means crossing. And so one who crosses down from the spiritual realm down to this world to help us, whether it's you know an avatar of Krishna or a bodhisattva, or in, in different traditions they have that concept that, that there is a divine realm and that qualified people can actually cross down into our world to give us a hand and to help us cross back to that higher world. So that's actually what the word avatar literally means. So avagachati, gum means to go, go, ga in Sanskrit, obviously cognate. So when you go down, when you go deeply into something, that's avagachati. And that's what Krishna says, tattadeva avagachatvam, when he says, try to understand how everything you admire in this world is really my energy. When Krishna says that, he says, it's, it's translated like understand, what Krishna literally says in Sanskrit is avagachati, go deeply into it. Literally go deeply into it. So, um, so if we are attached, like let's say for, that's the problem with lust. I mean, nowadays lust is like the greatest thing that, you know, that someone can do is, is to be lusty or to be sexy or and and you know and 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 everyone I, mean, I I saw this article by this person's mother who sort of an educated lady writing for one of the better uh, media it's relative but and she said she was talking about I forget what she was, she was talking about she was saying like of course I teach my daughter that you know that just it's really good for you to be sexual so I was thinking. I would, it's not that you have to tell your daughter to be ashamed of her body or, to be, or tell your son to be ashamed of his body, but we're actually souls. We're actually spiritual beings. And so to encourage your own children to ignore their soul and really get into your body as intensely as possible because obviously when, we are, when, when, a, when a person's sexually aroused, that's when their attachment to and their identification with their body is strongest. It's not that sex is bad. Exploiting sex is bad. It's just like knives aren't bad. Knives save lives in the hands of good surgeons. But if someone use, misuses a knife, it, it becomes very problematic. So in the same way, Krishna is not bashing sex. He's saying that it has to be used properly, in the proper consciousness, with a proper understanding of what it really is what the soul is and what the body is and how, how sex is a gift from God and, and how it can be misused and, and, and degrade us. But the more I'm attached, if I'm attached, this is just like psychology 1A. If I'm intensely attached to my body or someone else's body, basically I'm trapping myself on the surface of reality. Because the real person isn't the body. 
Krishna actually proves this in the Bhagavad Gita. He gives a simple example where he says, Dehi no sminjata dehi. Just as in this body, asmin dehi. Just as in this body, he says, Komara and Jovanamajara. We experience childhood, youth, and old age. So why does he say that? And then he says, Tata, in the same way we take another body. It's very interesting. Krishna is, create, is analogizing here. Krishna is saying that when you move from childhood to youth, adolescence, to old age, that is analogous to reincarnating completely, taking another body. Why? Where's the analogy? The analogy is that approximately every seven years, you reincarnate. I do too, actually. And, and I mean, the skin, you reinskin yourself. We can make up a word here. Uh, every two weeks. So if you like, if you're looking, you know, doing the mirror, mirror on the wall thing, and, uh, you know, how do I look to. So, and then let's say your mirror breaks and you're out somewhere in the some wilderness and it's not, it takes two weeks to get another mirror somehow on Amazon Prime. So <laughs> then when you look in the mirror again, you're actually seeing a different face. You're actually seeing a different face because in, because in two weeks, the skin you were seeing before, your face, it's gone. And you actually have a new skin. So people would say that shake hands every two weeks, it's like a new handshake. It's a brand new ball game. So, so and every seven years approximately, we, we totally reincarnate. Carne, of course, means flesh in, in Latin, Spanish, and everything. So, you couldn't be your body. It's, it's technically impossible. It's out of the question. Why? Because if we go into our own deep psychology, if we sort of, you know, Put our phones down for a second. And if, if we go, we, we, we know that I'm the same person I was seven years ago, 20 years ago, if you're old enough. Sorry, it doesn't apply to you there, kid. <laughs> so, because, I mean, after all, we can, let's do a little linguistic analysis here. We all say that when I was a little kid, when I was five years old, when I was born, and we just say that, but it's significant that we say that because no one objects and no one says, if you say, I was born on this day, no one says to you, that wasn't you. It was you, but the body's completely different. There's not one cell in your body that existed back then. So you reincarnated. That's the analogy Krishna's giving. Krishna is saying you've already reincarnated many times. You've already done it. So when people say, do you believe in, in reincarnation? Seriously? <laughs> because we've already done it many times. It's not that your little baby body just like stretched into your adult body. You know, that's this amazing elasticity. And so as you grow, your body just keeps stretching and growing. That's not really what happens. It's actually a new body. So, so Krishna is saying, you've already reincarnated and the process keeps going on. So therefore, to take the body as the self is to literally 
degrade yourself and others because a grade, you know, like, like pay grades and everything, the word grade, grado, actually means like a certain level. And so to degrade means to go down a level. So it, it, it's fair to say that to take the body as a self is degrading if it's the case if it's the case that who you really are is significantly better than the body if 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 who you really are if who you really are is more beautiful wiser has a better personality and and is eternal never dies if that's the case then to go from eternity to mortality, to go from sort of unlimited beauty to, you know, we're all doing the best we can with what we got, or to go from perfect happiness to the really very much anxiety-ridden, stressful world we live in, uh, to go from fearlessness to fear, you know, keep going here, it's obviously a degradation in the literal sense of the word. You're going down many steps. And so the logical question would be, why would anyone do that? It's like, why would someone throw away a fantastic status or just being an incredible person and then embrace an identity which is so much less than what they rejected? And so that's what Krishna talks about in the Gita. Like, why do people do this? It's clearly irrational. So why do people do irrational things like that? And what Krishna says is, it's because of our attachment. Our real position is we are meant to serve each other. We're all meant to love and serve each other. But when we develop this appetite, like I want to exploit you, I want to enjoy your body, or I want to get your money, I want to make a deal, or I want power, I want to subjugate you and have power over you because... The more people I subjugate, the more power I have. In other words, when we want to exploit people instead of actually loving them or serving them, then we blind ourselves. We blind ourselves because when we do bad things, uh, it, it covers our consciousness. That's what Krishna says, abritam jnana metena, that, that, that these selfish desires literally says they cover, they cover consciousness. And then he talks about someone, jnanagni dagda karmana, a person who, who has burned away his covering and has revealed their true consciousness and the fire that burns away this covering is knowledge. Krishna calls it the Gyanagni. I mean, both these words we still have echoes of in English. Uh, Gyan, uh, gnosis, Greek, like agnostic, like someone that doesn't know, agnostic. And as far as agni, we have the English word ignite. So you can see very clearly Sanskrit's in the Indo-European language. So Krishna talks about Gyanagni, the, the, the fire of knowledge that burns away George Harrison, by the way, he, he sort of used that in one of his songs. What was it? That, there's something that, uh, I forget the song, but he used a lot of stuff from the Gijana song. So, so getting back to violence. We live in a world that's very irrational because look at it this way. The more people are lusty, if I can use that old-fashioned 
that old word. Obviously, it's, it's like, let's give an example. Let's say you're really hungry and, and it's rational hunger because you, you haven't eaten. For some reason, somehow you didn't eat today and you're really hungry. And so as your hunger increases, what decreases is your ability to focus on anything else except your hunger and getting food. This is a very simple psychological principle that the stronger your desire is, the stronger your need or your attachment, the less you can think about anything else. I mean, I'll give you an example. There's a great example from uh, a great novel, Pride and Prejudice. Yay. <laughs> Tell your mother we mentioned it. Okay. Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. And uh, anyway, if any of you know the story, uh, the heroine, Elizabeth Bennet, probably the most famous heroine in English literature, beautiful young girl, she's talking to one of her friends about whether Mr. Bingley is falling in love with with Elizabeth's older sister. And Elizabeth loves her older sister very much. She's very attached to her older sister. It's just Jane Austen, her older sister, Cassandra. But anyway, so, so she's very, so they're discussing, like, does he really like her? How much does he like her? And so Elizabeth said, well, there's a very promising sign because at the ball, he was rude to everybody else, couldn't, ignored everyone else, didn't answer their questions, didn't even realize anyone was talking to him, and was just talking to her and looking at her. And she said, that's very promising. She said, what could be a better sign of love than general rudeness? And so, <laughs> so what she's saying here is that the stronger your attachment, the more you just can't think of other things. If you go to a party and there's someone in the party that you really, you know, really zapped you, you just don't really have time for anyone else. If you finally got to talk to that person and someone comes up and says, hey, can I talk to you? Not now. Because you just can't think of anything else. And same, same thing with hunger. Same thing with fear. You know, it, fear can become so great that one can't think of anything except one's fear and how, how to escape danger. So obviously, in a society which, which is just built on, you know, you know what turns the the engine, you know, you can say industry, you know, the, the engine of our society is somehow or other increasing people's material desires. So that you have to have a really sexy person, you know, anything to sell toilet paper or to sell, you know, anything. I mean, it doesn't matter. You want to sell like, like, I don't know. A car. Car, toolkits or anything. You know, it's, it's all, the idea is to arouse lust and then channel it and manipulate people. So the more people are aroused, the less they can be rational, the less they can be objective, the less they can care about other people because if your desire is really strong, you just have to satisfy it. So the more people are lusty, the less they can actually be, in the literal sense of the term, beneficent or benevolent, the less they can really think of the good of others because if you're starving, you can't think about other people. You're starving. And if someone's starving for sex, they can't think about others. Nor can they think, of even they can't even think about other people as people because it's just about satisfying your desire. Netflix is, by the way, I, uh, it's kind of awful in the sense that they have the, when they make their own movies, they have all kinds of barbarian things in them. But, 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 but the, they, they do have good movies, they just don't make them themselves. Especially the Adam Sandler ones. Thank you. <laughs> so, 
Um, so getting back to violence, obviously the, the less empathy we have, the less problem it will be for us to do things that harm other people. Like for example, someone can know that, I mean, as everyone knows, I mean, no one, no one, no normal person nowadays can say, I don't know, that meat is produced by just horrific acts of violence. Or that, for example, the mammals which are generally consumed, like pigs, cows, and the French actually breed, they raise horses for slaughter, which is kind of pretty gross for us. And in certain parts of the Far East, they raise dogs as a meat product. But these are advanced mammals. They have feelings. They have complex emotions. They have awareness. And so to know that I'm brutally slaughtering a feeling creature, an innocent feeling creature, simply to eat what turns out to be a carcinogenic food, is so irrational, and yet all kinds of otherwise intelligent people do it. All kinds of otherwise nice people do it. And so detachment, becoming detached, and attached to the truth. You, I mean, we can't, we can't just give up things. Krishna consciousness is not about giving up things. It's about outgrowing things. For example, when we were kids, probably all of us were attached to our toys. Did anyone here not have toys? Because we'll go out and get you some. To... <laughs> but you know, most of us had toys when we were young. And it's not that I had really good parents. I was very fortunate. I had very good parents, loving parents. And it's not that one day they just sort of ripped the toys out of my hands or took them out of my closet. I just outgrew them. So it's not about trying to give things up. Try, if we try to grow spiritually, when you grow, you outgrow. That's something I made up. I'm very proud that I made that. <laughs> Tell your friends that you were there when that, that thing was launched. So, <laughs> so it's not about trying to get you to give things up because that doesn't work anyway. It's about try to grow spirits with positive spiritual activities. Chanting, hearing, and just, we have a whole uh, variety variety set of spiritual activities for, for everyone. And we just outgrow things and, and we become and as we become attached to the spiritual things and attached to our own real self we become detached from other things. We, we really lose the desire to exploit other people and we are happy just to do whatever we can to help other people. So getting back to violence just to wrap this up uh, obviously, the less empathy I have, the more I can shamelessly commit acts of violence. And the more I see everyone as equal to myself. Krishna emphasized this in Bhagavad Gita. In the Bhagavad Gita, I don't have a copy here, but I, I published this very literal translation with a large systematic theological analysis of the Gita. And, and one thing you'll find there if you read it, prices are slashed. One thing you'll find is that um, Krishna really emphasizes equality. Equality is a big thing in our culture. And Krishna emphasizes it. It's one of the main topics in the Gita is equality. For example, Krishna says, Samatvang yoga uchate. Yoga is defined. He means our spiritual practice. Yoga is defined as equality. Pandita samadarshana. 
A person is considered a pandita, a wise person, when they see everyone equally. In all species, and all human beings. Krishna says that, samaksarveshu bhuteshu madbhaktiṁ labhate param, that you can achieve the highest state of bhakti only when you're equal to everyone. And so that equality, seeing the equality of all souls and treating everyone kindly is, is actually a, a big topic in the Bhagavad Gita. So, uh, and obviously that would... I don't even want to talk about people that you know, advocate gun rights. It's like, I don't even want to talk about it. It's just so disgusting that I better not even talk about it tonight. So, uh, any question about these topics? Uh, yes. Thank you, Maharaj, for the wonderful lecture. Uh, so, I have one uh, supplement and then one question. Yes. We have to recording device. Oh, there it is. Yes, so please. Supplement as uh, the first story that you told about the sage going to hell. That was actually told by Krishna to Bhishma Dev when he was trying to defend his vow, saying that I didn't. Good point. Yeah, yeah, very good point. Yeah. And, and, and actually, in fact, it just. Because uh, very, thank you for that. Um, because Bhishma is a person who was a great soul and had so many good qualities, but he was really stuck with this act-based ethics, and, and so he even gives a speech. He was young then, but he he took basically he um, his father fell in love with this princess because his his, his mother and uh, the wife of his father had was from another world, basically, and gone back to her own world. And so he was kind of, you know, miserable. He wanted a relationship. He met this beautiful princess, and she loved him. And so when he went to ask her father's permission, he wouldn't give the permission because he said, you're, he said, this is Bhishma's father, said, you're a great king, and, um, and you have a great son, Bhishma. He wasn't called Bhishma then, but the person who became Bhishma. Your son is so powerful that if, if my daughter marries you and has a son, that son will not be safe. Because he'll not become the king. What's that? He'll not become the king. He'll not become the king and he won't be safe. Yeah, yeah, he won't be, he won't be, I mean, he, he'll be in danger actually. And he won't be the king. Because making him the king was a way to eliminate the danger. Actually. And so then... The, the, the father promised his son Bhishma that you'll be the king. So he said, I, I can't do it. So he went home and he was heartbroken. Didn't even tell his son the story. Didn't want to tell him, but his son noticed. His son loved his father very much. The father's name was Shantanu. And, and so Deva, uh, Deva Vrata yeah. was his name. And so he, um, he saw that his father was really depressed and he loved his father. And he said, what's the problem? Deva and, and uh, his father said, oh, you know, nothing, whatever. He, and um, so the son was very intelligent. He said, no, something's wrong. So he went to the ministers. What's really going on with my father? And he, he, so the whole thing was explained. So then Bhishma went to this, who's actually a fisherman king. He's actually some low-class guy, but very proud, obviously. And so he said, I've come to take your father, you know, your daughter for my father because the girl wanted to marry him. The girl was in love with him. And so he said, I will give up my kingdom. And that was a great vow. He said, I'll give up my kingdom out of love for my father. And also I, I, I know the story. So then, so then um, 
the fisher was the fisherman king was very shrewd. He said, "Yes, but what about your sons? Your sons." And so then he vowed that he would never have children. He would never marry. And for a, for a passionate warrior, that was a big deal. And so he kept this vow. And so he was everyone in the world was astonished that he did this for his father. He gave up everything. And he remained very powerful. And so, but you can see because his whole life he had to keep his vow and, and it might have been a struggle for him. It might have been a struggle for him. He was this very powerful, famous, handsome guy who could never marry. And so therefore, I, I think he kind of, he, he fortified himself to follow his own vow by really fixing on the literal statement. If you take a vow, you've got to follow it, period. And so he really became absorbed in this idea that if, whatever you say, you have to do it, no matter what. But then Krishna was trying to tell him, no, actually, consequences matter. Because when Bhishma was young, he even gave this famous speech in Mahabharata where he was asked to marry because, ironically, all the children that his father had with that princess died young. And therefore, the... Uh, the girl, the princess who had married the father and become the queen, came to Bhishma, who was his age or even younger, but technically like his mother because she was the queen mother, and said to him, you must marry the widows of, of my dead son because the, the kingdom will fall. There's no king. And then he gave the famous speech, even if the earth falls, you know, if the whole universe blows up or the earth spins out of its orbit, I will never break my vow. So in other words, he's saying, I don't care what the consequences are. I'm going to keep my vow. And then later in life, when he's older, Krishna took him aside and said, look, consequences matter. And that's when, and that's when he told that story. So any other questions? So, yeah, I had a question. Uh, so this is about uh, the most interesting verse, uh, 1932, uh, where... Uh, in Prabhupada's translation... What, what's the Sanskrit? Uh, I don't know what the Sanskrit I'll find it. Take a second. Uh, let's see. Gita 9.32. Papa, you want to... Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes, what about it? Yeah, so... Uh, in Ramanikacharya's <coughs> Gita Bhashya, yeah. it is said that Papa Yonya Kama Women, Kama, Vaishya, Kama Sutra. Right? But in Prabhupada's translation, it is Papayunya hyphen women, Vaishya, Sutra. So it's kind of the, the meaning of the Prabhupada verse. So I wanted to understand. It's a verse, for those of you who don't know this verse, it's a verse where Krishna says, Manghi Parthi that anyone that takes shelter of me, whether it's um, women or Vaishyas, that means like merchants or even working class, um, or Papa Jonia, yeah. which has to be a compound, people of sinful birth, mm -hmm. they can achieve the highest goal. So grammatically, it doesn't mean that all women are sinful. Exactly. Grammatically. Mm -hmm. because, which is absurd. Because we know even when Krishna appeared in this world, there were millions and millions of women who were not sinful, they were the opposite. They were very pious. And, and some of the women in Krishna's own acquaintance were, were goddesses. So it would be absurd to say that women in general are sinful. Mm -hmm. That's obviously not what it means. So any other questions? Yes? I'm not sure if it's getting too late, but it's okay to ask.
Yeah, uh, this um, uh, kind of uh, stems from the last sentence you mentioned about gun control and all that. Yes. Uh, a general question is that I have is uh, about separation of church and state. Yes. I have heard from uh, several senior devotees uh, that that's uh, probably not a good thing. Uh, separation of church and state. Yeah, and. Uh, Oops. Because of that's not controversial. In the context, in the context of, uh, <laughs> in the, in the context of uh, that, there should be saintly kings or religious kings. Yeah. Okay. First, first of all, we have to understand what the separation of church and state meant in the founding of this country. Yeah. Um, separation of church and state did not mean separation of God and country. That's not. That's not what they meant. You have to understand the context, uh, and, and if you read the Federalist Papers and just the general, general debates that were going on among the founders, for them, the world that mattered was Europe. They weren't, I mean, they knew very little about Asia, or South America was obviously off their radar, and so they're talking about Europe, they're talking about modern Europe, and for them, modern Europe, and they're talking about classical Europe, you know, Greco-Roman civilization, which they knew very well. And so, what, what they found is that in Europe of their time, Every country had a state church. For example, France and Spain were Catholic. They were officially Catholic countries. And, and France, the French kings came up with an ingenious method to make sure that it was a Catholic, not a Protestant country. And they, they killed all the Protestants. Which was, you know, really... Violent. Yeah, they were, you can see they were, they were really thinking. So... And same thing, Calvin in Switzerland, you know, the Calvinists, and, the, and, and then you get Henry VIII in England, who was just like, sort of like your worst sociopathic nightmare. And so if you look at Europe at the time, principalities, states, countries had official churches, which were favored. And the founders, when they say, they didn't say separate God and country. They didn't want a state church. In America, and that's why, for example, two of the founders created what became two of the greatest universities in the world even today. Benjamin Frank Franklin created the University of Pennsylvania, Penn, the Ivy League school, and Thomas Jefferson, Virginia. So one of the top private, one of the top public schools. And both of them basically said, you're going to make this a Christian school over my dead body. I mean, they were really strong on that point that this is going to be a secular university you know, where different views can be presented and so on. But, I mean, there's, a fam there's all kinds of famous scenes, like, for example, the Constitutional Convention. They, couldn't, they just couldn't work it out because if you know your history, there was, there was a huge debate over whether you want small, a small central government and basically the powers with the states or strong central government. That's what the whole debate of the Federalist Papers. And by the way, that debate was not resolved until the end of the 1860s. Because the Civil War was a continuation of that debate. Basically, the, you know, the, the, the southern states, for reasons which are not admirable, but they did base themselves on this argument of states' rights. <coughs> And that's why they called it the Confederacy, because a federation and a confederation, they're different political terms. A federation means strong central control, and a confederation means the, the power is actually in the states. And, and the states simply allow a central government to do certain things, but basically they hold the power. So that was that debate. But so anyway, they were, 
debating all these topics, and then at, at the uh, Constitutional Convention, they just, it looked like they weren't going to do it. And it was really not clear back then that America was actually going to work, that the country would hold together, and it wouldn't just fall apart. It, that actually was not obvious to anyone. And so at one point they said, I forget who it was, one of the people said, the reason we can't do this is because we've forgotten God. We've forgotten God, so let us stop and everyone just meditate on God, say your prayers, and ask for God's intervention to save this country. And they did, and they worked it out. So, so clearly it was not, the idea was not to separate God and country. But, but, so having a state church is, is a very dangerous thing. I agree totally. Yeah. Um, um, but the, I think the context in which this is sometimes or often I have heard is uh, about removal of uh, any notion of God from school textbooks and going, taking it very far, uh, teaching Darwinism. That's kind of like killing the goose that laid the golden egg. Etc. Because, okay, here's a little American history for you. But no extra charged you. <laughs> the DOI, Declaration of Independence. Um, Thomas Jefferson was very bright. President Kennedy once invited all these Nobel laureates to a White House dinner. And he said, this is the greatest gathering of intelligence at a White House dinner since Thomas Jefferson dined alone. <laughs> so Jefferson was very much aware of a philosopher named uh, David Hume. Scottish philosopher who kind of blew everyone's mind in Europe. Basically, he said, you cannot derive a metaphysical fact from a physical fact. What he meant by that, let's say someone commits an act which is obviously wicked, like killing an innocent person. It's not non-controversially evil. Someone kills an innocent person for no good reason. He didn't save a million innocent people. He just killed an innocent person. And so Hume is making the point, if you examine that act, you don't find the evil in it, physically. In other words, you can empirically study it, criminology, get forensic evidence, you, you can, maybe someone, you know, there was a surveillance camera. Where is the evil? The evil is not a physical fact. The evil is a metaphysical fact. And so, therefore, Jefferson, being aware of this, he begins the DOI by saying, that we hold these truths to be self-evident. He used a technical philosophical term, by the way. Self-evident was a technical epistemological term he used. Because, by the way, Lord Chaitanya used the same term, right? Thomas Jefferson obviously was a, was a closet Gaudiya Vaishnava. Anyway, <laughs> but self-evident, in, in philosophy, the importance of a self-evident truth, and, and in the West, it goes back to Aristotle. Aristotle is the one that taught this. That whatever you claim to be true, you can be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. Like you can say something's true, I just proved it. Well, we'll prove that. How do you know that? And so on. And so, but if you say something is self-evidently true, it proves itself, then you escape an infinite regress of proofs. So Jefferson, by using that term, we hold these truths to be self-evident, was saying that there's no possible argument against it. And the self-evident truth is that we're created equal. We are not just equal. In fact, empirically, it's absurd to say we're equal. I can obviously run faster than all of you. <laughs> so... <laughs> joking. So the idea is that empirically, 
Equality is utter nonsense. And empirically, therefore, democracy is utter nonsense. Ironically, our political system, which we have given to the world, our political system is based on a religious assumption that we're equal because it's empirical nonsense. And so, if, and, and that's why Jefferson were created equal. Created equal means that the creator, in the eyes of the creator, we are equal. In the eyes, just like, you know, if, you, if you're a father or mother, one of your kids may be a better athlete, or some, one of your kids is better at math, or maybe one of your kids is better looking, but the parents love the children equally. And the children have equal rights. The parents don't say, okay, I have three daughters, this one's better looking, so you can get away with murder and the other ones can't. No. So, so getting back to this point, democracy, equality, is based on religious assumption. So if you want to take all religious assumptions out of our system, you kill the goose that laid the golden egg. How you justify equality if there, if there are not metaphysical facts? Because the physical facts are that we're not equal. There's no conceivable test you can give to human beings empirically that will show they're equal. Not artistically, not athletically, not intellectually, not emotional IQ. So the whole system, democracy, is based on a religious assumption, which people don't notice because despite the fact that we live in an incredibly thoughtful age, when people have lots of time to think deeply about many things. So, any other question? Yes? Going back to what you were saying about, you know, like the debates before, you know, like the de during when they were making the Constitution and mm -hmm. Well, before that, they made the Articles of Confederation, which basically did what the Confederacy did around 80 years later. It gave most of the power to the states, and the and the government was and the government wasn't as was was not powerful at all, really. And the nation nearly tore itself apart because the government couldn't get money from the colonies because the colonies were like, right. "Give you money? No thanks." And that's well, that was the Federalist Papers. That's that's what the debate was in the Federalist Papers. Where Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, uh, John Jay, they, they were arguing, mostly Hamilton, they were arguing that it's all going to fall apart if you don't have a central government that actually has some power. So, yes? So, I'm listening to a lot of these details, but there was an underline of us trying to make advancement, us trying to improve, and fabulous tagline about growing, meaning outgrowth. Good. But before that, we talk about being covered. And it's this, like, that's the tricky part, because you're covered, but you need to grow. But you're comfortable, and you're covered, and so you can't really see the growth. And um, Well, but you can... Even though we're covered, but you still understand. For example, let's say a musician. I play music. I mean, classical keyboard and other things. But so I enjoy it, and I just do it to relax and you know try to forget that I'm a leader in a religious institution. So, but um, I know that there are people that play you know a hundred times better than me. I mean, people would really. I mean, I can play and it sounds nice and all that, but 
But some people, I mean, you know, the, the concert pianists, they really play. And I can't. And so, so if I wanted to get better, you know, if I aspire to better, so we can, if someone is open-minded enough to see that I could be something better. But to be something better, I have to work at it. Excellence is not for the lazy. The, the reward for the lazy is mediocrity. Yes. I understand your example, but I'm trying to elicit some information if that's okay. Please. I please. hear you, you know, talking about this piano example. Yeah. And if you would just apply yourself a little bit more and maybe abandon some of these other things, like, you know, responsibilities of a religious leader, you could totally be an expert pianist, right? Like, you could do it. A little late. I think my muscle memory is a little uh, <laughs> You know, but we have all old. these seniors that do great yeah. things, and right? But they, we know, you and I know, that that's not what we want to do. We don't want to be the pianist. Of course, you have to choose your excellence. Yeah. You have but to choose your excellence. limiting factors to that pianist dream. And what I'm saying is, even though I might choose something that's extremely healthy, right. or like the highest beneficial path, there's these limiting factors that, like... I would call like almost like a covering, and and I know we could just like pep talk like, you know, get over it and you'll be you know, like just put a little more time into your piano practice and you'll come somewhere closer. But it's it's not easy. If it was easy, we'd all be doing it. True. And so where do, where like besides a pep talk, where do how do we get the covering off and tolerate that pain before the you know practice comes in and and covers us with like. Oh, this is nice. Okay. It feels good. Uh, okay, just one last little pep thing. Okay. <laughs> the, the way I put it is, everyone, everyone can have their, their uh, Rudolph moment, is what I call it. Like, you know, Rudolph's red-nosed reindeer. Then one foggy Christmas Eve, Krishna came to say. So the idea is that however many other duties we have, all of us are busy because that's the way the world is now because everyone's busy. But in these simple spiritual practices, like chanting the mantra, maha-mantra, whoever you are, whatever your situation is, you can chant with real devotion. And, I mean, even if you can't do it as, let's say, people who are full practitioners, you know, we, we do a certain amount of chanting, but maybe you can't do that. Maybe you have other responsibilities. But... Uh, even if you just chant 15 minutes a day or 10 minutes a day, if it's done with complete devotion, you can be empowered. God can move heaven and earth to give you opportunity. So it's not just a pep talk. It's, um, although it also is a pep talk. I don't have pom-poms. I love my pom-poms. Where are the team on the beam? But I believe that everyone, every soul has the same opportunity. And it's not just about going out and, and ignoring other responsibilities. It's about devotion. Because Krishna empowers us. I was walking with Prabhupada one time in, in Rancho Park. And it, was, it, was, it was like amazing. Somehow Krishna arranged that I would drive with Prabhupada to go for his morning walk. And I'd drive, it's a very beautiful part of LA. I'd drive past all these houses where I went to parties you know, when I was a kid. And uh, there I was with Prabhupada driving past all these houses where I went to all these parties and danced and everything and whatever people do at parties. And, and then we go to this park, which was my neighborhood park in L.A. And I literally would walk with Prabhupada over my Little League baseball diamonds and, you know, around the tennis courts where I played. And it was like, I, th I thought it was very interesting how Christian was kind of like recording over my old memories. But 
But um, so one time we were walking in Rancho Park in, in L.A., and Prabhupada quoted that verse in the Gita, in chapter 11, where Krishna tells Arjuna on the battlefield that I have personally already killed all these warriors. I mean, the warriors were the bad guys. He said, I've already killed them. You just be the instrument. You just be the instrument. And Prabhupada was really urging us. He was saying that Krishna, if you, if you present yourself to Krishna to be God's instrument, then you can be engaged. And, he, and, so, and so if Krishna accepts you, if, if, if you're sincere and Krishna accepts you, then you'll be given the power you need. You'll be given the time you need. So it's not a material thing to just you know, go over your schedule a million times and see how to crunch the numbers. It's a question of really giving your heart to God. And if you do that, all kinds of things can happen. I mean, look at Jane Eyre where she found she had a rich uncle she didn't know about and left her a fortune. Mm. That's, Jane, that's a great English novel. But. So, yeah, so, so, so it's not a material process of time management. It's a question of really cultivating genuine devotion and, 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 a, and a strong desire to be an instrument of Krishna. And if your devotion is strong enough, it'll happen. I don't want to think about anything else, like you're saying, right? I don't want to... Nothing else wants to be in my brain. Yeah. Yeah. So just focus on that. Focus on things which are within your power, which is your personal devotion. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Sure. Yes. Um, I'm coming across a, a lot of youth that are claiming to be atheists. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and I find it really interesting. <laughs> a lot of kids growing up... Um, either just disgusted with um, religious institutions mm -hmm. or um, just the idea that there's no God. What do you, what do you have to say about that? Like, uh, youth that are growing up without... First faith. of all, I don't want to be... How should I put it? I don't want to be unkind here or... But there are really serious studies showing that young people are damaging their brains by their uh, cell phone addictions. <coughs> In fact, what is it, uh, Tim Cook, who's the head of Apple, said he wouldn't let his nephew, you know, be on social media. I mean, he's the one that did it. And, 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 and the first, the founding president of Facebook, he was, I mean, Zuckerman started it, but, but he was the first president of Facebook. And he said very openly, he said that, because there's a whole drive now to, to correct this, he said, we intentionally developed psychological strategies to addict people. They actually use sophisticated psychological techniques to addict people. And they find that people who, like, like teenagers who, I think 60%, 60 percent of, of, of um, college students in America are concerned that they may be addicted to social media. And something like 80% of their parents are sure they're addicted. And it, it, it actually messes your brain up. And so that's one thing. Another thing is that there's a general, I think, because America has become kind of like a sexocracy, it's, like, it's, it's this, you know, this worship of the body and worship of sex. And let's face it, young people are sexier than old people. And so there's also all this arrogance, all this vanity and thinking because 
I'm sexier than the older people, I'm better, I'm more valuable, I'm wiser. And so we live in an incredibly messed up civilization. Another thing is that you know, young people, they like to make outrageous statements and most of those young people, when they get married and have kids, or have kids, sorry, I'm dating myself, when they get older and have kids, um, they, uh, they'll sing a different tune because then they see the, you know, my kid. So uh, I don't think the world is going to atheism. I don't think it's really happening. But there, but there, yeah, there are different currents going on. And often, most atheists I talk to in America, when you kind of drill down, what they really mean is, I didn't like the religious experience I had as a kid. So, I mean, the, these young people, they, they simply don't have the equipment yet because their brains aren't fully developed to say, okay, what about world religions? What is it exactly that I didn't like? Have those objections been somehow or other overcome? In, in, in other traditions or even in other manifestations of my tradition. So it's not like they've made a, a thoughtful, thorough investigation. They're rational about it and they've come to... It's, it's anything but that. Plus, we're supposed to be out there fighting the good fight, you know, trying to spread this knowledge. Yes? I also find that I have a 20-something son, and, and growing up, I took him to church and sometimes to the temple when I could find one or when I figured out where they were. Um, but now he's 20-something, and, and uh, he's, he's proud of the fact he's an atheist, and his girlfriend's an atheist, and all his friends are atheists, and he says, and you, Mom, you're an agnostic. You believe in Krishna, and you believe in Jesus, and you believe in everything, so you're this or you're that, you know, and I think, you know, I don't think With all due respect to your son, it's, that's not what the word agnostic means. Okay. <laughs> Actually, that's technically called uh, religious uh, syncretism. Okay. Yeah, but anyway, it's... It's very confusing and it's very... Yeah, they're... I mean, if they were thoughtful people that really thought about it, but I, I don't think they are. And, you see, one thing is... This anti-authority has gotten so strong it's that, how should I put it, that um, because we live, we, live in, we live in planet advertising. I mean, everything is just commercialism. And, and obviously the way you sell something is by pandering to someone, you know, appealing to their vanity, to their pride. You get all this like idiotic stuff like you're great. Even at colleges you see it. I mean, colleges basically are now really promoting narcissism. You see banners, like colleges put banners up, like you're great, and, you know, and, and, and the most wonderful person is you. It's like this self-esteem thing where, you know, universities, I see it at campuses, encouraging everyone to think that you're great, you're perfect, you're the most wonderful person in the world. So it's not about actually being excellent. It's just thinking yourself that. And so the whole atmosphere is, and of course now, you know, th this country elected the narcissist in chief. <laughs> and so, it's just kind of like this, they say in Brazil that every society has the, the government it deserves. Just the narcissism and, and the vanity and the, and, and so in, in, a, in a culture like that, why believe in God? Why believe in someone greater than you? 
Why believe in someone that has the authority to tell you what to do because you're God and you're perfect and you're the one. So it's, it's reaching pretty impressive levels, depths I should say, of, of, of ignorance and just foolishness. And, but we just have to get out there and uh, here comes the pep talk. <laughs> yes. Um, in uh, universities and when it started in this country and I'm sure in Europe, theology was the father of all subjects. Theology yeah. was the source and everything came from that. Yes. If you didn't understand reality and the source, then you really didn't have anything to say about anything else. Um, I do have a question though, which is about uh, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that all living entities are following my path unequivocally. And I have this question about people's life path. Yes. And so much things happen karmically that get you to a certain, you know, job, family, experience, lifestyle, what have you. And at some point, you know, as if you're trying to grow spiritually or God is, you know, through his grace trying to reach you, you might have an awakening that says, you know, I need to shift. Now I noticed two streams of thought. I'm just curious about your opinion. You know, like um, one is like, people want to radically change their life and do something different. Like maybe go into service or change careers or you know, leave their family or all kinds of crazy things to try to follow something more authentic. But then there's another more like spiritual avenue which maybe you don't have to change your material life. You just, something internal shifts. So I'm kind of interested in your perspective on um, this kind of awakening that happens and if it's important to change our lives to, you know, reflect what's happening in us internally or if we can just kind of like stay to the path and just kind of like cultivate an inner devotion and Prabhupada this is something I really miss today because it was really Prabhupada not so much today you don't find it so much in the Hare Krishna movement and that is he was really a missionary and he, he really Prabhupada made it very clear that an essential component of bhakti yoga is that you care about other people and you care about the world and you try to make the world a better place. Of course, obviously, we all do it in our own way within our own limitations. But So in answer to your question, um, I, I saw this interesting TED Talk online. I didn't personally attend, but it was, it was this really nice young lady from Stanford. She's a teacher at Stanford. And, I think it was that was the one, but she was making the point that people, people in the mental health industry, <laughs> you know, psychologists and psychiatrists, always assume that the less stress you have, the happier you'll be. And they found out that's not true. Because, for example, the place where they sell the most antidepressants is Florida, where they have all these retired people, these you know, golf courses there. There's more golf courses than there are, I don't know, you know, fire hydrants or something in Florida. So, but they have no purpose. And so when you care about something, like let's say you have children and you're, you know, you're in anxiety because you care about your children or you care about your partner or you care about, you know, just you care about something. And so even though it may cause some stress, but your life has a purpose, your life has meaning. What really depresses people is when their life has no meaning and no purpose. And whether they live or die doesn't really matter to anybody. That's really depressing. So even if it's a little stressful, uh, having a purpose in life, 
Like, I have to do my part. And so that's what I've been emphasizing, that bhakti yoga, it's not just, sure, it's, you know, offer your food to Krishna, you know, buy a little set of chanting beads or something. You know, it's that stuff, but it's also caring about the world. And somehow or other, uh, for example, recently I went to one city, I won't say where, to protect the guilty, but... And it was a city where there's there's quite a number of devotees, but it's like it, it was just a particular situation where if there's, you know, if you had twelve devotees, you'd have eighteen opinions and twenty three gurus. <laughs> and and it was interesting because there was really I couldn't detect any real um, effort or intention or drive. Like let's all get together, let's all unite. I mean, for example. Let's say that, like, like that, I mean, that tragic event at 9-11 with the, the second airplane, the one that was over the Midwest or something. And so all those passengers, all those passengers, you know, they didn't know each other. They were just maybe civil, but they were, no one was interested in anybody else in the flight. But when there was real danger, when, when there was really like a, 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 a crisis, they all worked as a team. And that's what people do when, 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 you know, where the rubber meets the road where something's really at stake. People come together if they're sane. And you see that, for example, in the, um, an example of not doing that is when, you know, the Greeks, the Greek civilization tradition is based on city-states. And Alexander kind of bludgeoned them into a larger political entity, but it didn't last. As soon as Alexander died, they just did what they always did, you know, all the cities were fighting with each other. And it's interesting because at a certain point, there was a new power on the horizon to their west, which was Rome. And even when they had to unite to, to save themselves from being just sort of taken over by the Roman civilization, they couldn't do it. And so when and, and so they, and they were taken over by Rome. Because they were so, you know, fiercely independent and individualistic and um, so when you, when you see it, and that's what I thought, when you see a group of people who all basically share the same basic values and yet they don't come together, they don't compromise, they, don't, they can't work as a team, it means they don't care about the world that much. Because when you do care about the world, you know that unless we work together, we won't get anything done. We're going to lose this game unless we start playing as a team. There was that famous case where America, you know, when they... When they um, when they made, when they allowed professional athletes to compete in the Olympics in basketball, and um, it was just kind of like, like the NBA players, they just like showed up and beat everybody by ridiculous margins, and they became very confident. And then one Olympics, they actually lost. I mean, America lost the basketball medal in the Olympics, and everyone knew why because they were just all a bunch of show-offs and you know. All-Stars, no one, they didn't play as a team. Other teams played as teams. So then, they, of course, it changed everything. And now they just, you know, and now, of course, they win again. So being able to work with other people, caring about the world, doing your part, whatever that is, uh, to, to help a mission so that we can, and, and that's what Prabhupada gave us because Prabhupada convinced us so strongly that we have to save this planet, that you just, you know, you just have to work together. We have to be a team. 
And, and you know, it means you can't be a ball hog. You can't just do whatever you want. And so I, I think that that's what we need, need to revive. And that's what people should do. Everyone has their own life, obviously, and everyone has their own contribution. But we have to, again, start forming powerful teams to save the planet. And to me, that's a real sign of sincerity. That's a real sign of sincerity. Otherwise, everyone has their own little spiritual practice and, you know, who cares about the world? And that's not vice, and that's, that's a third class position. It's in the Bhagavatam. If we don't deeply care about the world, and we just say everyone has their own little, so not, you can say in Spanish, cada cual con su, su vidita. You know, everyone has their own little life. That's not advanced Krishna consciousness, and it never will be. It's, it's considered third class devotional service. And the Bhagavatam says, it's kind of on the mundane platform. The Bhagavatam says this, don't kill the messenger. The Bhagavatam actually says, if someone just goes to a temple, worships a deity, you know, takes part in the ritual, and doesn't really have a mission in life, isn't really working with others, forming a team to try to save this planet, that's material platform. Actually, the Bhagavatam says, Prakrita Bhakta, a devotee on the material platform. So, if we, like Prabhupada, to bring Prabhupada into this equation, whatever that means, whatever the equation is, but to bring Prabhupada back into this, we have to start caring deeply about the world. And if you care about the world, you form a team, because without teamwork, you can't do anything. All of us individually are pretty much, you know, what can we do? The world doesn't care about me, the world doesn't care about you. But if there's teamwork, then the world will take notice. So maybe we'll stop here and uh, have a sacrifice perform and eventually do what Hare Krishna's do best. You can eat, have a nice feast.